Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Well, I just think it's definitely where you're coming from. Like, it's going to definitely help out others and hurt some. So, I don't know. I just feel like it's almost a double-edged sword. Right now on KSL Plus. I know many people in my program that are really worried about how they're going to pay stuff off. On August 25th. These targeted actions are for families who need it the most. President Joe Biden announced a plan to forgive up to $20,000 for borrowers of federal student loans. To finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. This week, Governor Spencer Cox joined nearly half of the governors across the country in demanding President Biden withdraw that plan. Like I said, it's going to be hurting me, so I can't imagine how many others it's going to be hurting. So we'll see what happens. I'm Matt Rascone, and this week we dive into the conversation surrounding President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. It's expected to benefit millions across the country, but 22 Republican governors oppose it. In a letter dated September 12th, the governors told President Biden Americans who did not choose to take out student loans themselves should certainly not be forced to pay for the student loans of others. Your plan will encourage more student borrowing, incentivize higher tuition rates, and drive up inflation even further, negatively impacting every American. To understand what's happening here, let's start with the economics of the student loan crisis. It's a topic that's interesting for academics and obviously very interesting for policymakers. Professor Taylor Nadal is the finance department chair at BYU's Marriott School of Business. We published a paper in, in the, that got published ultimately in the Review of Financial Studies, which is one of the top three finance journals in the world. He's written about student loans and was part of a team who testified to a congressional subcommittee about student loans and tuition. There's a lot of talk about um, what's what's called the student loan crisis. How how would you describe what the crisis is or what the problem is? Yeah. You know, that word, that word student loan crisis is the very reason that I went and took that sabbatical to to, uh, to study student loans. But what I learned about student loans is that they're they're not a crisis in the way that we talk about the financial crisis. So let me use a metaphor. The financial crisis was a lot like a hurricane or a tornado that it, it came. It was dramatic. It was quick. It blew the financial world up and then it kind of blew out. And the economy actually recovered reasonably well after a couple of years. The student loan crisis is a little different for a couple of reasons. One is that the ultimately 
the government's on the hook for student loans, right? Because um, student loans used to work more through private markets until Obamacare. So the government basically took over the student loan market as a means of paying for Obama, uh, Obamacare. And so now, like over 90% of all student debt is federally funded. And so when you talk about defaulting on, if people default on student loans, it, it, it's a check that the government will end up writing. So the reason it is a crisis, though, is, is because students end up being saddled with so much debt that it affects their ability to do a lot of things. Like the research suggests that higher student debt balances are associated with less uh, mobility in the labor market, uh, less likely, a lower likelihood of going to graduate school, uh, lower likelihood of um, buying a house, having homeownership and, and forming families. Uh, so a lot of social outcomes that, that economists think are positive for the economy those get stunted by high student loan balances. So how do we get to the point where we are today, where the president is now saying, hey, we're going to forgive up to this amount, 20000 you know, per borrower? People can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities, to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. Let's talk about what the economics of the student loan market are, what the economics of university budgets and tuition are, and and then um, kind of the economics of household, the way households make financial decisions. When you put those three things together, then we can understand kind of the trade-offs that a politician would be thinking about when making that decision. I, I don't want to weigh into to the you know someone's particular politics about what what a wealth transfer should or shouldn't look like. So let's just start with establishing three facts. The first fact is that universities have immense market power. What I mean by market power is, Matt, if you and I decided we wanted to go start a new university, to, if, we thought that, if we thought the University of Utah was getting too expensive, then the way that we would compete with that is we'd go start a new university across the street and compete for students, offer lower price, compete for students, and compete the price down. Like So in fruit, you know, in, in any regular market, like the market for milk or the market for fruit, if that, if, if that market price gets too high, then new supply of the product moves in, and that's what competes the price down. But when you think about universities, there's such market power in universities that you can't just go start a new university to compete with high prices. So let's establish that fact. That first fact is that it's been established in the literature that universities have massive market power for all the reasons that we can understand. There's huge fixed costs, high market power. That's the first fact. The second fact is, and this was the fact that, that was established in the paper with the Fed economists, is that universities use that market power to extract, uh, to charge higher tuition when the government supplies uh, more student loans. So if the government increases student loans by, this, the availability of student loans by, say, $10,000 per borrower in the form of a subsidized or an unsubsidized loan, meaning they will let the average borrower borrow more money from the federal government. Well, what the research shows is that institutions just capture that higher that, that those increased borrowing amounts by increasing tuition. So our paper showed that it was like 60 cents on the dollar. So the government offered one additional dollar in the form of a student loan. Universities can use their market power to increase tuition by 60 cents on that dollar. So it ends up just being a transfer from the government providing a loan to the bar to the borrower that then gets extracted by the university in the form of higher tuition. And who gets left holding that debt? The student borrower. So we've established that universities have massive market power. We've established that that universities can extract, um, can increase tuition on the back of higher student loan availability because of that market power. 
And then the last fact to establish is that all the consumer credit research over the last 10 years has shown that when consumers have the ability to make a debt payment, they generally do. I know that sounds silly, but what it refutes is the argument that people strategically default on like their mortgage or their auto loan. They don't really do that. They make payments mostly when they can. So when the government says, now we're going to create a program where student borrowers can only, only have to pay 5% of their income you know, for the life of the student loan, and let's increase that maturity out 20 or 30 years, that means that they're going to be, they're going to be able to service that debt. If they're going to service that debt forever. It's going to be hanging over them forever, but they'll just be making these small monthly payments towards that debt. Okay, put all those three facts together. What happens? Tuition, tuition and loan availability have this really perverse relationship. When you increase tuition, the government increases loan availability, which then increases tuition, and the government responds by increasing loan availability, which increases tuition. Feeding okay, off so, of each other. Yeah, so they feed off each other. So student debt balances start really increasing. Now you have a president that, that says this is a crisis, and, uh, and I want to deal with this crisis in the lives of individuals. I'm going to forgive that student debt. A lot of people are really struggling right now. Uh, a lot of people are struggling to make ends meet. Uh, a lot of people are, you know, worried about kind of their debt level. And so th- to those individuals and to that extent, I think it will be very helpful. Well, the risk you have here is that universities recognize that, know that they can capture the student loan market with their market power. So they're going to increase their tuition even more. Student loan balances get higher, but people feel comfortable doing that because they think that there's a chance that the government will forgive that debt. Does this create a slippery slope? Does this mean that students in the future are going to start to expect uh, loan forgiveness over and over again. And ultimately what you get is a wealth transfer from people that can afford to pay for university tuition without student debt to people that have to borrow so much to pay for student debt, right? So, so the way the student debt forgiveness gets paid for is with higher taxes. And so it ultimately ends up being a wealth transfer from the government to the pockets of universities in the form of higher tuition. And then taxpayers end up subsidizing the borrowers that borrowed to pay for that high tuition, but know that they was going to get paid off by the government anyway. So it's, it's, those are the economics of it. So I'm wondering, does this plan from President Biden do anything to solve any of the issues that we're looking at? Um, clearly, that you know there will be some relief uh, provided to to individuals. Does it does it do anything to help well, with the problem, or is it just adding to it? Because that, that's, that's kind of what I understood from what you said. Yeah. So it's a really tricky word. Um, solve the problem. The economics is about trade-offs. And so if you propose um, something like, you know, debt forgiveness, obviously there's people that benefit from that, right? Like, so depending on what news outlet you you want to listen to, there will be news outlets ad nauseum that publish stories about how this is relaxing the financial constraints that so many Americans are facing. That's obviously true. Student loan debt, is outpacing credit card uh, debt. The National Foundation for Credit Counseling saying the plan is welcome news as student debt is adding to the financial problems families are facing. Hopefully this will be a a, a positive for our nation and for um, our economy uh, at some point down the road. If I give someone $20,000, how is that not obviously going to relax their financial constraints? So that's an obvious benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Now, depending on your political persuasion, people don't want to talk about the cost side of the trade-off, right? This is just, this is a decision that involves trade-offs. What is the cost side of this trade-off? What I tried to describe is the economics that outline the mechanism by which the cost side of this trade-off will manifest itself in the economy. The way it will manifest itself in the economy is 
universities will ultimately charge higher tuition. Borrowers will ultimately have to borrow more. And they will borrow more because they they will think there's a likelihood that that debt will be forgiven. And so how does that get paid for? That gets paid for with a higher budget deficit. And so now we're in the realm of talking about how you feel about budget deficits um, and and the fiscal stability of the United States uh, and everything else associated with that, right? Interest rates and inflation. And so the general equilibrium here is it is a wealth transfer and it will have the effect of increasing the budget deficit and all the things associated with higher budget deficits. So does it solve a problem? I don't know. It depends on how you feel about relieving financial constraints in individual lives paid for by a potentially unsustainable budget deficit. But, you know, there are some winners and there are some losers. The, the winners are those that get their debt relieved and the losers are taxpayers and people that need to access financial markets to finance stuff, which in those costs will be higher, the higher the government deficit goes. Um, and universities will be able to charge higher tuition and, and do whatever they do with higher tuition costs. Prices arises because, in fact, the students can't pay the government back, and that's why the uh, balance, outstanding balance on student loans, has just gone up and up and up. On the one hand, uh, lots of money is going into the higher education machine, um, but the students aren't actually getting the so-called return on investment that the whole premise, that the whole uh, uh, privately financed uh, basis of the higher education system kind of requires. Um, so that's why we've gotten to the point that we are that the government is now outright canceling student loans. If they were able to be paid back, they wouldn't have to be canceled. I also spoke to Marshall Steinbaum, an economist whose research includes higher education and student debt. Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Utah and Senior Fellow in Higher Education Finance at the Jane Family Institute. Here's part of his take on the impact of canceling student debt. Well, I should say it doesn't really solve the affordability problem or the access problem. Those are big, thorny policy questions that have, that remain to be uh, attended to. I supported the president's uh, policy. I think it could have gone a lot further and should have because there's a lot. There's still even if they carry out the uh, cancellation as announced, there's still going to be a lot of uh, student loans out there that aren't going to be able to be repaid. So they're going to be keep canceling a lot more down the road through one uh, means or another. The federal government's initiating um, $130 billion of new student loans every year. Now they're saying, oh, well, we can't actually get these loans repaid, so we're going to forgive them on the other end. But it's like, well, why are we giving them out to begin with um, if we know that the sort of whole, the premise of people repaying loans just isn't working? So if I understand right, you mentioned uh, you support what the president's done. You think he should have gone farther. And it's more along the lines of, because now it's out there and we're talking about it. Uh not necessarily because you think it's going to fix something. Well, it'll definitely be a major benefit to a large number of borrowers. I mean, the median student borrowing for people who have outstanding loans is something like $20,000. This is $10,000 for everyone, 20000 if you took out a Pell Grant. So, you know, there are millions and millions of people whose life will be changed by this policy. And I don't want to down talk that, uh, that fact. And, if, and that's a big part of why I found the uh, governor's letter uh, letter to the president to try to stop this pretty offensive because they're basically saying that millions of our constituents don't deserve to have a decent life. And I think it's shocking for uh, elected officials to take that position. Um, 
on the other hand, as you say, there's other <laughs> debts out there that aren't going to be repaid. And so we're going to have to do this again. And yeah, I think a big uh, benefit of the of the plan is just exactly that it shifts the sort of political discussion in a, I hope, a constructive direction towards recognizing the house of cards or game of musical chairs or whatever analogy you want to use for uh, higher education finance writ large. So let's go back to the governor's letter. Um, they pushed back on on a couple of different things. And, uh, and I think uh, the most glaring thing is just the financial economic impact of this, um, that this is simply transitioning the responsibility, the burden of paying these loans now to other people that, you know, one could argue avoided debt or have already paid off their, their student loans. Um, how, how do you, how would you explain how that's going to work? Who is going to be paying for this? Obviously it's not just gone. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a shining example of politicians doing what politicians like to do best, which is when uh, policy failure of their own making is glaringly apparent, they like to point the finger at regular people who don't have any power and say, oh, oh no, it's actually your fault that you're in this problem. Or if we're going to help you in this problem, that must come at the expense of somebody else notionally people who already paid off their debts or didn't have student loans to begin with, when in fact the finger should be pointing at themselves. That is to say, it is the fault of state-level elected officials for defunding higher education institutions, causing tuition to go way, way up, and forcing more and more students, especially in younger generations, into the higher education system to begin with. So we basically eliminated all of the jobs that were decent middle-class jobs that didn't require any higher education at all. So now, on the one hand, in the K-12 education system and elsewhere in the economy, we've got uh, figures of authority saying, you need to go to college. That's how you get the skills necessary for today's jobs. And basically any amount of student debt that you take out will be worth it because you'll uh, that investment will repay itself in the labor market where you'll get higher earnings. And so this whole shift of the burden of higher education from state governments to individuals in the form of federal student loans hasn't worked as it was supposed to. And now the politicians are uh, 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 embarrassed by that. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 that's your fault. They point the finger at student borrowers when, as I said, it should be pointed at themselves. This is, is it safe to say that this is a temporary fix? Yeah, in the sense that we're definitely going to be canceling student debt more going forward. Absolutely. And that's baked into existing uh, policies regarding student loan repayment. So, it's going to be. It's going to not be paid back by one means or another. Um, and I think, in, in in that sense, the uh, president's policy did uh, screw up because they basically took the view that this is going to be a one-time thing and don't expect this to be repeated. Um, and the fact is, as a policy matter, it will be repeated. There's no doubt of that. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, that could uh, that that decision to make it seem like it's uh, a temporary one-time thing uh, could come back to bite them. Governor Spencer Cox is among several governors calling on President Biden to withdraw his student loan forgiveness plan. 22 governors signed a letter to the president. News specialist Matt Rascone has more from the University of Utah campus. Matt. Governor Cox and others in that letter say they support making higher education more affordable and accessible. But they argue that President Biden's plan is not the way to do that. Can you that explain that side of it? I mean, are, are those who have avoided debt, are those who have paid off their student loans already, are they the ones who are going to be paying for this? Well, the answer to your question is who pays taxes? So up to a certain income level, people really actually don't pay taxes, right? By the time you get all the exemptions. So, uh, and it just so happens that the income levels associated with 
debt forgiveness end up being pretty close to the income levels associated with who pays taxes. And so, yeah, the answer is people that pay taxes are now going to pay more taxes to pay for people that got given money. Now, that's just the mechanics of it. The politics of it depend entirely on how you feel about whether there should be wealth transfers or not. And I mean, that's that's like the political discussion that's been happening in our country since day one, um, just manifest in different markets, right? And this now it's in the student loan market. Well, based on your explanation, um, it sounds as though, you know, there's there's an argument that could be made that this debt forgiveness is going to add to the problem because universities are going to be increasing and there's going to be more people uh, that are taking out loans. Is that yeah. accurate? I would say that the research so far indicates that when, because universities have market power, when the government makes more student loans available, universities capture that in the form of higher tuition and, and therefore people have to borrow more to pay for school. And so debt levels ultimately will be higher and there will be a transfer from taxpayers to people that don't pay taxes in the form of this debt forgiveness. That's whether you whether you describe that reality as being exacerbating the problem or not. I think that's a subjective statement, but that's I think that's the economic reality. In the letter to President Biden, Governor Cox and others also argue the president doesn't have the power to cancel debt and that the plan won't really solve what it's intending to do. So what we wanted to do was provide some context and perspective on how to address big sweeping policy issues like this. Because every time they come out, it's, it can feel easy to kind of just go with our knee-jerk reaction of, well, I like this policy or I don't. To explore these questions and others, I sat down with Nick Dunn with the Sutherland Institute, a nonpartisan think tank based in Salt Lake. The most important question there is, of course, is this constitutional? Is it legal? Does it follow the right processes? And ultimately, of course, that'll be something that will be decided by the federal courts if there's a lawsuit that, that works its way through that process. But that crucial first question of is something as constitutional, the administration, of course, is arguing that it is. They point to the 2003 HEROES Act that gives them, according to their arguments, authority to forgive student loans in the instance of, in this case, a national emergency. There are, are, are of course, people who are rebutting that argument saying, well, no, that law was only intended for members of the armed services who are being activated because of the war on terror to make sure that while they're overseas serving, their student loans wouldn't default. So that's kind of where that debate hinges. And, and again, ultimately, it may have to be decided by the federal court system, but because there's so much focus on that question in the public dialogue, it should underscore the importance for all of us that whether something is constitutional and legal and whether it is the proper role of that institu institution to advance it is a really crucial cr question before we get to the others that start to answer the impacts and whether it's good or bad. So that first question of constitutionality and the role of the institution are very important as illustrated by the robust public dialogue around it. What problem do you see this addressing and how, how well crafted for that is it? So, so the crucial question here is, does this target the right problem? And student loan debt, higher education policy in general, and the cost of higher education are very important and complex issues. And so there could be a number of factors at play that are impacting the core problem, such as 
Is it just the debt load that borrowers have, that there, there's a high amount of debt load? Is it that the, the value of the, of the degree they have in terms of translating into earned income to pay back that debt, maybe, that, maybe there's a mismatch there. Is it that the college completion rates aren't where they need to be? As, as we've heard, there are a number of people who have student loan debt who didn't actually finish a degree, and so that they might be in a different position as far as paying back that effectively than others. So all of those factors are important, and that's the crucial question here is, what is the way that something can be targeted to the right problem rather than just doing something that feels good? What is the best way to target something to a specific issue where doing that intervention will help to address that issue? And we've heard that from from the governor's letter recently and, of course, all the arguments on both sides of the cost of college, the value of the degree, the ability of, of people to complete their degrees and then derive the benefit from that. All of those things are kind of interrelated and very complex, but are important to think through for this issue and, and for policymakers and members of the public to help determine, well, is this proposal crafted in such a way that it addresses the right problem or the right set of problems? And so it kind of leads into the third question of, does this, what long-term impact does this kind of thing have? Is it going to create unintended consequences? Is it going to help things down the road, and that's also been a source of, of important debate of does this create any kinds of perverse incentives, meaning does doing this create an environment in which we inadvertently encourage others to act in a way that furthers the problem, whether that's the, the amount that, that college costs, whether that's the amount of student loan taken out, or, or the kinds of degrees that are chosen and the completion rates for those degrees in being able to equip people with the skills in the marketplace to pay, pay off the debt effectively. As members of the public, when we hear about a new policy proposal, it's easy to just think, well, I like this or I don't like this, or it, it helps people that I think need help or goes about things in the wrong way. But what we should be doing is thinking through questions like this, because if, if we like something but it's not constitutional, that can be problematic. If, if we like something but it's, it's kind of broadly applicable and not really targeting a core problem, that might not get at the core issue either. And if we, if we like something but it maybe creates some unforeseen consequences down the road, those are the kinds of things that we need to be thoughtful of. And the more that we can encourage members of the public and of course policymakers to address issues like this in that kind of thoughtful way, that elevates the public dialogue. It helps turn down the temperature as far as the anger that can inflict these kinds of arguments and helps us engage whether we agree or not with the administration's position on this or, or that list of governors. If we're able to argue about the issue through these lenses, it's a much more thoughtful approach that will help members of the public feel a little bit better about the way we address these issues as a society and, I think, help us get closer to solutions that can make a real difference for people. This, of course, is an ongoing conversation that we at KSL will be following closely along with former and current college students. That does it for us this week on KSL+. Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. We'll see you again next week.